Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Transforming 45. This is a week, listeners. It's a big deal. So on the week that is my last week as an official educator, my very last day is tomorrow, uh, the guest that we have this week is a human who is in my very first grade six class. And it is deeply disturbing to me that this human is now in their 30s <laughs> because I don't know how that's possible because I am still 24 just like I was when I started teaching only I'm not because the name of the podcast is transforming 45 so we all know how old I am <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I am so deeply grateful and excited to welcome TK Pritchard to this podcast we were just having a conversation before we hit record and I was saying how grateful and lucky I am to have so many people out in the world that I am so proud of. And the, the thing about teaching that I will miss is getting to be part of the lives of young humans, because once you have been a student in my world, I love you and care about you forever. And so, Getting to reconnect with you as an adult has been an absolute joy, and I'm so glad that you are here today. So, TK Pritchard, Executive Director of the Shore Center, welcome to Transforming 45. Thank you. And, uh, you know, also it's like really nice for me to be back in the space with you. Um, and I also, I know this is not what we're going to talk about, but I want to affirm that um, you are an excellent teacher. And while maybe being part of uh, young people's lives looks different for you now, um, I still remember a lot of the experiences I had in your classroom. And now that I'm a parent, you're still impacting young people through my parenting and the skills that I have today. So I hope you know that the impact that you've had on our lives uh, as young people and young adults has not ended and will not end. Well, Thank you. I'm trying to hold it together. <laughs> so, it's a day of big emotions. My oldest is graduating from high school today, and that was really beautiful. And thank you. Thank you very much. So tell me your story. What got you to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting when you and I met, I used a different name mm -hmm. uh, and different pronouns and lived a very different life. Um, you know, at the at this point in my life, uh, as a trans and non-binary person, 
I've shifted through a lot of identities in the last 20 years or whatever it's been, uh, which is wild. There's been so much change. And so when I was younger, um, I, you know, lived my life as a girl, uh, like a, like a tomboy girl. I was not very like good at being a girl. Uh, <laughs> you see pictures of me now and you're like, that kid is wearing an oversized gap shirt and a back, backwards baseball cap and giant basketball shorts. Something is up with their gender in some way. Uh, and it was, it definitely was not that it is for everybody. Um, but when I went to high school, um, I had started to like struggle a bit with my gender and my sexuality. I was like super confused and like really confused about how to piece those things out um, and started uh, at the time I was still identifying as a girl and I had uh, started dating another girl in my high school in secret. It was very hush hush and sounds fun. Wasn't fun. She was in university, which felt cool as a high school student, but also um, was not cool when you have to be like super secret about it. Uh, also to be clear, it was within the laws of like consent and all of those things, not that different, but uh, you know, I, so I'd started dating a girl, dated in secret for a long time, came out, uh, as a queer woman when I was uh, like 18, um, to no one's surprise. I like all of my friends were like, yeah, like we get it, uh, which was nice and affirming and funny. Um, but I really had a hard time. Like at that time I was doing a lot of organizing. I was in a lot of queer groups. Um, it was a, you know, time when we were not really talking about trans people. We were not really talking about gender. Um, but I was finding my place as a community organizer via, you know, doing pride events and, and queer pieces on campus. Uh, and that was really good. And that was really affirming. And I was happy with like the folks that I was dating and, and getting to explore my identity more as a queer person in that way. Um, so those things, and you can see impacts from even that community organizing in my career today, which was really helpful. Uh, but when I was 19 or so, I, I felt so unsettled, so unsettled in who I was. I couldn't figure out why I was so unhappy. I couldn't figure out like just what was happening for me. Why it, it's, it's like feeling like you're wearing clothes that are too tight all the time. Um, but not really understanding why and, and what the cause was. And again, a big part of that was because there was not a discussion about trans people or language or gender. Um, and when I was 19, I had actually told a partner at the time, you know, I think I maybe want to use a different name. I don't know. And my partner freaked out and uh, was not supportive. And I was so scared. Uh, I was so scared that of losing her. I was so scared that everyone was going to react that way. Uh, and so I like pushed it back down um, for several years and, you know, continued identifying as a queer woman and kind of moving through different stages of that and gender presentation and um, being a more masculine leaning person and cutting my hair off and all of those things. Uh, and again, continuing to organize and doing social justice work. Um, but then when I was, uh, you know, a little bit older than that in my early 20s, um, it, kept, it kept coming back up. I kept feeling unsettled. I thought about my gender a lot. I thought about my body a lot. Um, and I just really, like, couldn't get comfortable. And 
that's when I started to have the realization that I, I just wasn't a woman and it, it wasn't, it didn't fit for me. Uh, and I was so, it was like a very freeing, but very terrifying understanding to come to. I remember the person that I was dating at that time, sitting in my car in her driveway and saying it out loud to her for the first time. And I just, I just sat there. I think we must've been there for hours. And I just kept saying over and over again, I don't want this. I want to be normal. I want to be normal. And I like sobbed in my car with her for hours because I just couldn't. I, it was so hard and there was not examples of trans people to look to. The very limited stories that I'd heard around gender diversity were um, tr very tragic. And, you know, you weren't going to have a good life as a trans person. And it's just, I didn't want that for myself. Um, but, you know, life doesn't work like that. And it, it's who I am and who I was. And so in my kind of earlier 20s, then I started to, you know, change my name and share a bit more with folks, um, eventually told my family and, you know, lots of like hard things to work through with people um, in that front. But, um, you know, it, it was, it was challenging, but I felt settled for a few years kind of in my gender identity stuff. And, and I stayed in that, I stayed identifying as a trans masculine person for quite some time, sort of moving through my career more um, in uh, nonprofit work, worked in suicide prevention for a while. It's hard work. Uh, that's really hard work. Um, but my passion had always been in work that's more in the kind of gender diversity, social justice, uh, reproductive rights space. And so when I moved to Kitchener, where I am now, and uh, moved to be with my partner, I really got back into sexual health education. And again, at this time, you know, I'm still identifying as a trans person, feeling really comfortable in that. Getting to do sex ed that's trans inclusive uh, as a trans person was really affirming. Um, and I have uh, so many stories and experiences of young trans people that I interacted with doing that work that just really was, I hope, affirming for them, but incredibly affirming for me. Um, and as I moved, you know, I worked in gender-based violence prevention in a sexual assault center for a while as a manager uh, before coming to where I am now as the executive director. And I think because I've worked in fields that are pretty open and accepting, it's allowed me to explore and, and shift in my identity a lot more than I could have in another space. Uh, and so in the last few years, that's when I kind of started to shift away from a more binary identity and um, settle into being a non-binary person and, and using they, them pronouns and realizing that I've spent a lot of my life trying to fit into a box uh, that felt neat to other people, right? It was much neater to be a cis person, so someone who's not trans and be gay than it was uh, to be a trans person was a lot neater to be a binary trans person right more people can wrap their head around the idea that okay you were a girl or woman but you want to be a man or a boy like they can they can get that and and that comes with a lot of expectations around like hormones and surgeries and all of those things and uh, that people have an idea of that trans narrative but when you actually start to realize you don't fit in those boxes and it's actually painful in a lot of ways to keep trying to fit in those boxes and the number of things that I've tried to kind of cut off of myself to fit in those boxes I just don't want to do that anymore and mm -hmm. so I, you know in the last especially now I'm 
very comfortable in my career, very comfortable in the organization that I'm in. Um, you know, it allowed me to actually like explore being a non-binary person, settle into that, stop caring as much about what kind of boxes I'm expected to to fit into. Mm-hmm. And here I am. <laughs> it's uh thank you for sharing your story. So honestly, it's, it's a, re- I always struggle with saying like, it's a remarkably brave way of living. It is a remarkably brave way of li- living and it shouldn't have to be. And I feel like that's where I always get hung up around. Aren't, aren't we all trying to just figure out who we are and what our identity is and how we can show up in the world? And why do some people have to face so much violence and, judgment and discrimination for a process that is similar to what anyone experiences in terms of trying to figure out who their identity is. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I I totally agree with you. And I, I've been having a lot of conversations about safety lately and, you know, how feeling unsafe when you're younger impacts, um, how you can feel safe as an adult, right? And mm-hmm. I think for a lot of us, and this isn't just for trans people and queer people, there's, you know, anyone I think who particularly can like visibly identify things about their identity, also just like women in general and the ways that people experience like street harassment and violence. Uh, it's really hard to figure out like, how do you become safe? And it's frustrating that there are people who experience that more than others. And, you know, I have a lot of privilege in this space and being a white trans person, um, being that like my disability is not visible uh, as well. And that um, other aspects of my identity are not, you know, always on the surface. So there's things that I have more safety and, and privilege in some pieces. And also I remember what it's like to when I lived in Barrie, uh, I was walking out to help someone whose car had stopped in the middle of the street and a car drove by and just screamed dyke out the window at me. And, and I was, you know, like 17. Um, and it was so jarring. It was one of the first times that someone had yelled something homophobic at me. I, I mean, I'd been harassed before that, but, uh, and the number of times when, you know, you're out like holding your partner's hand and, people are looking and, and people make comments and um, and then as an adult, as a trans person, uh, yeah, just the types of things that I experienced in clubs and the, at the hands of men. And um, it, it makes it hard to feel safe. Uh, and I know that a lot of people have had that experience and it's not okay that because of our identities that uh, people choose to take that safety away and getting it back is not easy. No, getting it back is not easy. And sorry, my brain is going in like five different conversation (laughs) streams at the moment. So I'm just, I'm trying to pick one to start with. (laughs) And that is, you you and I have talked before where I said, I wish I had known when I was teaching you what I know now. It was, I was 24 and it was 2002. So we weren't having these conversations. It didn't, to be quite honest, it never even crossed my mind. Um, when I 
when I think back to some of my practices around referring uh, like girls and boys and girls line up here and boys line up here, although I always tried to be fairly conscious of that and not do it a lot, Mm -hmm. it still crept into my practice. And hearing you speak about how important it is to have that representation, it's so... It's a key element into making a space where kids do feel safe in their bodies. Mm -hmm. So if we can make spaces where kids feel safe and they don't feel like they have to retreat, then this work at the other end won't have to be so prevalent. And it makes me wonder why. So also knowing you and your story, it gave me the courage to read the book George to my last grade six class, um, well now called Melissa. Mm -hmm. And that evolution and seeing students who were in that class, who were, who had the capability to say, you know what, I think I'm non-binary. And all of that conversation was not, it didn't make anyone feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where parents are coming at this conversation right now is that they feel like somehow it's going to make their kids unsafe if other kids get to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm wondering about what your reflections are around that. Yes. What a frustrating time we're in, in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I do want to jump back for a second to say, um, and last time, you know, I chatted, I shared with you, of course, and had sent to you that I had written a piece for our school board about my mm-hmm. experiences as a trans person um, here in Waterloo Region. And I was asked to name teachers who were supportive. Um, and I did name you because even though it, it was such a different time and we weren't having those conversations, what you had done and what I think people like ultimately really need is offered very non-judgmental spaces, uh, spaces where it felt okay to be who we were. Cause I didn't have the language and understanding at the time either about my identity. And, you know, there's for lots of folks, there's lots of questions around, like, if they had had the conversation sooner, would you come to that realization sooner? Um, but we didn't have the tools at the time. And so I think, you know, give yourself a lot of kindness around the time that we were living in, but also you are a person that I name and look back and say, you created a space where I was like such a weird kid and I didn't feel weird uh, when I was learning with you. So thank you. And um, I will always name you as a person who, who offered that to me. So um, when I didn't have that in a lot of spaces, uh, so I hope you remember that. And I think like on the front of, you know, well, like call it what it is like trans panic that people have, right. Is a lot of it that they think, by providing resources and talking about queer and trans people that their child is going to be queer trans. And ultimately, if your kid is queer trans, they're going to be no matter what. A book is not going to change that. Uh, But if you are not supportive, you will change whether that kid will ever tell you, whether that kid will ever be well, um, whether that kid will make it which is one of the hardest things to think about right that we know that kids need supportive adults in their lives and without them that their mental health outcomes are really poor as well as like very increased rates of suicide um, and suicidal ideation and so you know there's 
there are consequences to not being able to create those supportive spaces. And on the other side of that, by creating them, you are only doing good, right? Um, and, I, you know, a discussion that we've had here locally is I'm a very out trans person uh, and I'm also annoyingly public in our community because of my work. And my family is queer. Uh, my child obviously knows that I'm a trans person. Um, we read books about trans people and pride because it's important that she's able to talk about her family, right? It's very cute, actually. If you ask her what um, Rem usually calls me Didi, um, what is Didi's identity? She goes, they're trans and binary, uh, which I <laughs> smells delicious, actually, like a, like a berry I keep in my fridge, but uh, it's very cute. So, but my child, who is um, almost four, is going to go to school and talk about her family. And is she not supposed to? Is my family too controversial to be in the classroom, let alone the kids themselves who might be feeling that way? And so we have this idea, and it's always books. Books are the thing that come up constantly, is we can't have these books in our schools. Uh, but my God, we have books about everything. It doesn't mean your kid's going to like turn into a dragon because they read a book about it. Like just, mm -hmm. it's okay. We're just learning about the world around us. Uh, and it's teaching other kids also how to accept even my family as well as their peers. And so there's such importance to those conversations. And when I think about what like it felt to navigate not knowing who I was for so long and not having the language and not having the role models. Uh, and when there were people to look to that, yeah, their lives were very depressing. If I could have not experienced that, I think I would have been a lot more well sooner uh, because I was very unwell the, when I finally identified my trans identity, that I was very unwell. And I think it maybe would have been different and I think for a lot of my peers, it would have been different too if if we'd had some of that, even just, yeah, like resources sooner. Um, and so they're super important. And they, like not to be dramatic, but they do save kids' lives. Mm -hmm. And that, I, I want to always focus on, like I want trans people to thrive. I don't want us to just live. <laughs> uh, but at a baseline, I would like us to live. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not dramatic at all, right? We know we know the impact on the brain of what it is when you are in a space that doesn't feel safe or where you are constantly searching for something that resembles who you are. And I think one of the big misconceptions that happens for parents is there's this deeply sexualized notion mm -hmm. around what exists in those books or what the conversations are in school and in conversations with people who I know that's one of the things that I draw attention to because that's there you know the argument is but kids are just they're little for so for such a short amount of time we need to protect protect their innocence mm -hmm. and my question always is well innocence from what yeah and they're like well you know it's sex i was like it's not what we're talking yeah. yeah no i people say this to me all the time too and I, it is um one a deep misunderstanding about gender conversations um 
you know, there's a separate conversation to be had around like how we shame young people as they try to understand their bodies and things, but mm-hmm. we can save that for another day. Uh, but gender is, a, it's not the same, right? And when you look at one, we know that kids start to understand their gender when they're quite young, right? And explore it and play with it. And that's great. Uh, so, you know, there's validity to what kids are sharing with us when we're quite, when they're quite young, which you often, you know, people push back and they're like, well, they can't know. And uh, how, but we don't have that conversation about kids that we perceive as cis or not trans, right? So we mm-hmm. don't question the kind of very significant gendering of girls and boys and the ways that we reinforce that nonstop. Uh, and so people think that's okay, but they don't understand it if you're talking about trans and our binary pieces, even though it's all gender, right? It's just that those pieces are normative, so they feel okay with reinforcing them. And people also, I mean, even if it was about like dating and connection, people make weird comments and jokes about kids dating each other all the time. Uh, I think that's much more strange than a conversation about gender. And I, you know, I'll tell you my own kid, we talk about gender all the time, right? Because um, obviously people in her life gender things, uh, daycare and, and things like that. And when we have these conversations with our kid, once in a while, she'll be like, hey, I'm a boy. And we're like, cool. Do you want to tell me what that means for you? And then she might say something and then she moves on. And then, and that's great. And in that moment, was that a big reveal about her gender? Probably not. But what I've modeled for my child is if and when she does have language or things that she wants to share about her gender, uh, that it'll be okay, that we responded to it in a way that was supportive and affirming. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. Um, and I'm seeing her use the things that we're learning. We have a book about gender where um, the uh, one of the kids is trying on clothes and says, like, these clothes don't make my body feel good. And the other day we pulled out some clothes and she was like, those clothes don't make my body feel good. And I could have cried. I was like, yeah, the fact that you are naming that and feel like you can tell me that means the world to me because that's all I think so many of us are trying to do mm-hmm. is have our kids be comfortable and safe and know that they can express their boundaries and their needs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what a healing stance to come from, right? Where when we think about all of the ways that we tell young humans that their bodies are wrong, regardless of where they're at with gender, we do that in so many ways. And so we set up all of these boxes that kids and he, like humans feel like they have to fit into. And the beauty of this work and the and the and your leadership and the transition for me is it's so beautiful to see people just being who they are. 
of it drives me crazy when people say like well i love you know we care about you regardless of who you love it's mm-hmm. like no i love you because of who you love it's amazing you're leading yeah. the way in showing us how to truthfully live your life yeah and the back and that's where i i find my biggest sticking point where i just i cannot get my head around why people are so scared and angry and maybe it's because they have had to live in a box of their own creation for so long that it's terrifying for them to see people leading and living in a way that is true and authentic it's the only thing i can really conceptualize in my head around why people are so afraid of seeing people other people just living in a truthful way yes i think you're right on i you know i have two thoughts one is that when i think about this particularly in relation to when someone is a parent of their child i'm Something I've tried really hard not to do, which maybe sounds silly, is I have tried not to picture my child's life um, and play out what it's going to look like because people do that. And then, you know, it's why you end up having so many conversations, I think, as a queer person where people are like, well, now, can you even still have kids? And you're like, well, that's, you know, first of all, people don't have to have children. Um, second of all, of course, yes, I, but you're, it's not in the way that you necessarily pictured or getting married doesn't look the way that you pictured. Um, and sometimes I think for parents, it's from a place of fear. You know, I remember having a discussion with my own parents uh, both times that I came out and they were, they were really afraid that I would get hurt in life. And, you know, and it's not like I didn't, but I think there's an important understanding that folks have to come to that it hurt me a lot more to not live as who I am. And it is much more painful to hide it every day and to live with the weight of that secret than it was to just live as who I am. And then I think about even just kind of generally with adults, I think you're right. I think that folks have, the boxes particularly around gender are so strong. We gender everything and it becomes so important to people's identity, even if it's not conscious to them. And I think, you know, people talk a lot about like, why is gender stuff so important for trans people? And some of it is that it is more, I think, conscious for a lot of us and that we've done a lot more thinking about it. But for a cis person, sometimes they haven't thought about it at all, but it is like a cornerstone of their identity. It's just an assumed for them. And so the idea that you're could potentially think about your gender or play with your gender or it might look different or that there are people who are doing that feels like an affront sometimes to those boxes and those categories uh and it it can rattle that sense of you know i am safe in this box um and i know that can feel really challenging for people and i mean (laughs) it always blows my mind i think about gender a lot but i'm like that other people don't uh and that's cool i really want to know what you use that brain space for because it really uh, (laughs) takes up a lot of mine but it's also yeah it's incredibly freeing to live the way that i do and not to feel constrained by gender to not feel like constrained by any of those boxes 
um, and not by my body. And that's a thing I think we we have to talk more about people's bodies and trans folks and what that looks like, because, uh, you know, I'm a trans person who had top surgery, which I, I am very grateful for, that I did. It was important to me. Um, I was on hormones for 10 years, but I stopped taking them last year and I don't have interest in going back on them. Uh, but there's a very significant narrative around if you're a trans person, these are the surgeries you're going to have or not. I also work in sexual health. And so it's really common in my work, for example, to talk about bodies uh, and to talk about like being on your period and things like that. It is complicated when you're a trans person who looks the way that I do as like a somewhat masculine looking trans person to be like, yeah, I actually need to like go book a pap test, right? Like I do, I really need to call my NP. Uh, but for years, my body was what was holding me back in that comfort, right? Because it doesn't fit the idea of like what a masculine person is supposed to look like. Um, and that can be really challenging for trans folks. And also I think, again, cause some discomfort for cis folks because visually people are not matching up the ways that you think that they're going to. But when you live the way that I do, uh, now I just don't care. I'm like, great, this is my body. You want to talk about periods? Let's have fun. Like, it's fine. Um, and I don't have to be stuck in, and, and no one has to be stuck in, you know, this is what my body is, so this is what my identity must be. Yeah. It's the lingering gifts of colonialism and patriarchy, right? That <laughs> it's so much easier to control a population when you create shame around the very the very essence of how someone shows up in the world yeah right? so it and it's we experience it across across the entire spectrum like as a woman who's now entering menopause there's a whole like that's a whole world of body shame that i didn't even really know existed until i got here and realized why does why is nobody talking about this there are major shifts happening in my body and there's no one really to talk to about that or even understand and like research is just beginning to come to to sort of bring some understanding and yet our bodies are are like, this is it this is what we have to navigate yes. through the world. And, and I think another reason for the, for the pushback and the shaming is like what I said earlier, it's a lot easier to control a population that feels afraid and feels shame. Yes. And when you feel empowered in your body, then you can show up and you can start shaking the foundations of things because you are deeply rooted and grounded in this vessel that moves us through the world. Yes. Yes. I totally agree. Also, I really love that I cannot get through a single meeting or podcast without someone saying patriarchy. Usually it's me. Um, <laughs> so, and, and colonialism. So thank you for that. No problem. Uh, not to follow what you said beautifully with a joke, but mm -hmm. it's, um, no, it's true. And I feel like in so much of the work that I've done, whether it was, you know, teaching puberty in schools, um, whether there is doing uh, sexual violence prevention work in the work that I'm in now doing like queer and trans education in different spaces. Um, I've said something similar around, you know, 
we there's almost nothing in this world that is like exclusively yours but your body is right and there are so many forces often trying to change that and work against that and take that autonomy away from you um, and what are our opportunities to say no like this is my body i am gonna feel good in it and like push back on the things that say that i can't whether that's you know, when people are going through puberty, whether that's because they are a trans person, whether someone's going through menopause, whether it's related to weight uh, and what our bodies look like, you know, we only get one. Uh, but it is hard because the world in all of those categories and more puts a lot, a lot of judgment and expectations and those really hard, fast boxes of where you must be. Uh, and that can be particularly hard in, in gender stuff because it's just, you know, to try and I spent so long myself trying to like fit the box and look like it so that people would believe who I am. Right. right? And how do I signal to them? Right. And that idea that I need you to see me and believe me because I am so uncomfortable in the world around me that it's made me so uncomfortable in my body um, mm -hmm. and that's really hard that's a, it's a hard spot to be in when you're also recognizing that the world is not built for an identity or a body like yours um, yeah yeah and you're making me think too about something we had talked about earlier in that it's like when you make the decision, it's permanent. And that that's why one of, one of the reasons people get so worried is like, well, if you start going down this road and you change your mind, well, who doesn't change their mind about yeah. who they are, right? It, we don't, we are not static beings. We do not stay the same over the course of our lives. And so I think it's also important to loosen some of the reins around that of like, well, the, but this is who I am. This is who I am now. And mm -hmm. that matters. Yes. Yes. And this is a very nuanced and hard conversation, particularly when people talk about young people there, because there is very little room to move through your identity. Um, and when I look at my own life, I remember every time I've kind of shifted in a label, I, it, it wasn't grief, but it was something similar. It may be like a fear of like I was grieving what I was doing to my community because I was always in leadership roles. And every time it felt like I was betraying someone because I had fought so hard to be in one category. And then when I would realize that wasn't true and probably like the best example is when I did then come out as trans, you know, I had been leading the queer groups, um, on campus at my university and I, you know, in one meeting told folks like, Hey, I'm actually changing my name. I'm a trans person. There were really not a lot of other trans people on campus. There was like one at the time. And so again, it was like a pretty new conversation. And after that meeting, someone came up to me and they're like, so are you going to step down now from your role? And I was like, well, why would I do that? Like, did I do something wrong? What's up? And they're like, well, now you're a straight man. Uh, and I was like, no, no, um, no. And I'm still part of the community. And so these things happen even within the communities where it's hard to shift in your label because sometimes it feels like a betrayal. But the other thing is that sometimes it's so hard 
to talk outside of our own communities about these things because we feel so fragile. And there are so many people who want to attack particularly trans communities right now that it feels like if you give any reason, any crack in the foundation, it will just explode and give them way more fuel. And so there's this deep fear that as a trans person, and I'll say personally, as a trans person who's quite public and is in public roles, that I have to be the best trans person I can all the time. There are no, I, I can't have questions. I can't struggle in my identity. I can't be unwell in other ways because it gives fuel. Uh, and I promise I'm going to stop talking in a second, but I'll say even that I recently tweeted, don't go on Twitter. It, oh, what a nightmare. Why do I do it? Um, but I had tweeted uh, something I wrote about my, my own mental health. And mm-hmm. someone, of course, commented being like, did you realize you were mentally ill before or after you put, you know, they, them pronouns in your bio and said you're a queer person? And it was like, cool. Like, I... <laughs> Uh, and then, and then worse comments came, of course, cause it's Twitter, but mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard that you can't be vulnerable. You can't be, you can't give reason. And so, so much of that can things shift is scary because there's people on the other side who will be like, well, of course, then it was just a phase, mm-hmm. which is not true. And it's really reductive. It's remarkably reductive. Absolutely. And it's... <laughs> I just what humans are complicated and ever evolving and we're weird and we're all of those things. And why I, I, I know it's still one of the things I wonder about is why, why do these categories and boxes make us feel so much safer? Because we're all living in these boxes of pain and shame. And yet we somehow feel that that's safer than letting those boxes drop down and just being able to say, this is who I, this is who I am. And when I live as this person in the world, there is way less shame and there's way less pain than living in that box. Yes. Yes. And the number of people who live with that for such significant amount of time. Right. And the, you know, a lot of my like older queer and trans friends who didn't kind of come to that recognition until they were much older, mm-hmm. that shame has had such a big impact on their life for so long. And then they're dealing both with having to hide who they were potentially or not knowing, because again, when you don't have the language or the examples, it's really confusing to name that feeling of what is this? Like, why can't I figure out what's happening? Um, And I'm very lucky in a lot of ways that I was in my 20s, right? That coming to it at a later point can be so hard. But then folks then also often experience like a significant amount of, did I waste so much of my life? Uh, And that's, I think, a really hard feeling to sit with. And I think a lot, and when I'm in conversation with those folks, what I feel for them is it's okay to feel that way. Um, And also you are always who you've been. It's just other people couldn't see that, Um, but it doesn't change that you were still that person and you were living in the way that you needed to, to survive with the best information and resources that you could at the time. And there is no shame in surviving. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that 
you know, I, I hope for them that the next kind of part of their life feels different and that they, they find that kind of supported community and, and I'm happy to offer it. Um, but that is a hard feeling. And when I think a lot now about young people, I just don't want to do that to them too. Right. That, that trauma of like living like that for so long is very hard. Yeah, it is very hard and it doesn't need to be. I, I know I, I talk a lot about systems and systems of oppression, but systems don't exist on their own. It takes people to uphold them. And it's the, it's the hard, it's the hard intersection that I find in talking about education because I try to keep it focused on the system. And there are people with good hearts and well-meaning individuals who are in that system who are trying to show show up and be there for kids. And at the same time, it is humans who are holding up that system as it is. Mm-hmm. And I know you do a lot of advocacy. And are there, are there ways and strategies that you found effective that bring people into the conversation so that they aren't so afraid, so that they are able to listen, so that there's able to be a shift in heart and mind? I um, last week crushed an entire podcast in one day. And it's called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And it's a really fascinating listen. And I want to be like, I don't agree with J.K. Rowling's perspectives. I don't agree with where she's at. And the woman who is the interviewer was born into the Westboro Baptist Church. Mm. Her family was the Westboro Baptist Church. And when you brought up Twitter, it made me think about it because it was just like, it actually was Twitter that changed my mind Mm. where people were reaching out to her in ways that weren't shaming, that weren't judging, but were introducing to her different ways of thinking and also saying, Hey, so when you say this, this is how it impacts me or this is how it impacts this person and it was through that process that she left the westboro baptist church her and changed her entire world's view so it is a fascinating it's a fascinating listen in hearing like how her evolution through that and then her conversations with jk rowling and they also bring in trans voice very authentically Mm. And it is, it, I don't, it sounded to me like a way for people to be able to engage in the conversation and possibly change heart and minds. But I'm wondering what you found. Well, now I'm going to add that to my podcast list. Uh, Mm -hmm. If my child ever lets me listen to something that's not Baby Shark. Um, (gasps) Yeah, the joys. Um, That that phase will pass, I promise. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Everyone's like, you'll miss it. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that I'll miss that in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I'm going to say two things because I'm going to speak to your advocacy piece, but I want to acknowledge something that I find um, that I just hold in conversations around advocacy. And when we talk about, you know, systems level work and your right systems are people. And mm-hmm. it is frustrating when folks don't recognize that, that any system can change. 
whether that's big or small. As an executive director, there are sometimes things that come up that the staff are like, oh, well, this is the policy. And I can say, why? Let's change it. Who wrote the policy? I, who says that? Who can change the policy? Oh, I can. Great. I'm going to rewrite it. Perfect. Uh, and obviously, I have a lot of autonomy in my role, but all systems have someone like that who can change them or several people. And so it is important to remember that piece. And that also something that people will say quite often, especially when we get to a systems level conversation is um, change is slow. It takes time. And I don't necessarily disagree with that. However, it's also important to remember while change is slow and it's taking time, there are real people being hurt during that time. And when you are the one being hurt and told to wait uh, and that it takes time, you feel very much less than. And that's hard. And it's hard to say, why can't you just fix it? Why can't it just be better? And so the, you know, I, I always try to stay focused on when I'm doing advocacy, not falling back into that it has to be a slow burn, even though in some places it does, uh, because there are real there are real people being impacted during that time. So I do think, you know, in terms of when we're trying to kind of change folks and offer support, um, I mean, I, often there's like kind of multiple approaches and, you know, I do find obviously pieces like storytelling help quite a bit for folks to see the like real lived experiences, which is hard. That's a lot of labor from, from people to have to share, but uh, to see, you know, this is actually how you're impacting people and how it hurts. And then also allows to like counter some of the very highly uh, controversial and highly charged misinformation that is put out about trans people and queer people on social media and in other spaces that is just simply not tr true um that sometimes people have only heard that side of it um, and hearing the reality is different um, i do think there is good conversation to be had around like where we allow those really highly charged misinformation pieces to exist uh, I mean, in many school boards, there's great debates now about that being aired at the school board level. Uh, and the, the challenge is that when we do things like that, or when Twitter refuses to flag abusive transphobic tweets, um, it treats them as valid and as if they are on the same level as something that is actually factual and actually impacting people. Um, you know, so that having those counter narratives is really important, but also working towards pushing back on those other pieces, which is where I think that, uh, you know, allies are a really important part of this because as a trans person, I can stand here and say, hey, that presentation that, that person gave was full of transphobic garbage. Um, but people are just like, well, you're, you're biased. It impacts you. Well, yeah, of course it does, but also I'm not wrong. But sometimes people hear it more from, from someone who's not directly part of the community. I'm not saying that folks should take over and you should always take leadership from people who are directly impacted, but we need allies pointing to the JK Rowlings of the world and saying, yeah, I actually also don't agree with this because I think that we have this significant challenge where, you know, I'm seen as very left, 
I mean, I don't think I'm that radical, but like other people would think that I am. Uh, and folks who are really far in disagreement cannot hear me. Uh, they cannot hear me, but they they might hear someone who's more in the middle uh, and someone who can can kind of bring them in a bit into that to say, yeah, like this is how you're hurting folks. So this is how that lands. Like that news source you're checking out, like it's not real. And so that's, we need our allies in those spaces to really drive those conversations. So part of my advocacy is activating allies to do mm-hmm. that and providing skills and, and information and tools around what does that actually look like? Because if I engage directly, they won't hear me. Yeah. Well, my final question to you was going to be, what can allies do? And you took us right there. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. And it is, I will show up in any way I possibly can, because it's not, what was the quotation I heard? It's not the work of the oppressed to take down the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, it takes it takes all of us and it's not OK for you to have to bear and the community to have to bear the entirety of the weight of the emotional labor that it takes to break down systems and generations of oppression. And it is necessary for us to also speak up and to be there. So That's that idea of just. Just don't be silent, right? Mm-hmm. And look for those moments. Like this conversation right here, you inviting me to be here and share with your listeners, this is a form of resistance, right? And mm-hmm. I, I'm really grateful for that. It means a lot to me that you want to explore this and that you explored it in your classroom. Those are acts of resistance. And as trans people, we engage in acts of resistance a lot, right? And so I think it's just finding when folks are allies what is your resistance and where can you make a change? And, you know, today you're doing that. So thank you. Well, thank you for being here and for being so um, open and vulnerable and honest and your storytelling, I know will make a difference. And I'm just grateful that we got this time together today too. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wanna Bet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid.